Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Horror at Chilton Castle by Joseph Payne Brennan I had decided to spend a leisurely summer in Europe, concentrating, if at all, on genealogical research. I went first to Ireland, journeying to Kilkenny, where I unearthed a mine of legend and authentic lore concerning my remote Irish ancestors, the Obrinans, chief of Idoach in the ancient kingdom of Ossory. The Brennans, as the name was later spelled, lost their estates in the British confiscation under Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford. The thieving Earl, I am happy to report, was subsequently beheaded in the tower. From Kilkenny I travelled to London, and then to Chesterfield in search of maternal ancestors, the Hobans, Wilkerson's, Seals, etc. Incomplete and fragmentary records left many great gaps, but my efforts were moderately successful, and at length I decided to go farther north and visit the vicinity of Chilton Castle, seat of Robert Chilton Payne, the twelfth Earl of Chilton. My relationship to the Chilton Paynes was a most distant one, and yet there existed a tenuous thread of past connection, and I thought it would amuse me to glimpse the castle. Arriving in Wexwold, the tiny village near the castle, late in the afternoon, I engaged a room at the Inn of the Red Goose, the only one there was, unpacked and went down for a simple meal consisting of a small loaf, cheese and ale. By the time I finished this stark and yet satisfying repast, darkness had set in, and with it came wind and rain. I resigned myself to an evening at the inn. There was ale enough, and I was in no hurry to go anywhere. After writing a few letters, I went down and ordered a pint of ale. The taproom was almost deserted. The bartender, a stout gentleman who seemed forever on the point of falling asleep, was pleasant but taciturn, and at length, I felt amusing on the strange and frightening legend of Chilton Castle. There were variations of the legend, and without doubt the original tale had been embroidered down the centuries, but the essential outline of the story concerned a secret room somewhere in the castle. It was said that this room contained a terrifying spectacle which the Chilton Paynes were obliged to keep hidden from the world. Only three persons were ever permitted to enter the room, the presiding Earl of Chilton, 
the Earl's male heir, and one other person designated by the Earl. Ordinarily, this person was the factor of Chilton Castle. The room was entered only once in a generation. Within three days after the male heir came of age, he was conducted to the secret room by the Earl and the factor. The room was then sealed and never opened again until the heir conducted his own son to the grisly chamber. According to the legend, the heir was never the same person again after entering the room. Invariably, he would become sombre and withdrawn. His countenance would acquire a brooding, apprehensive expression which nothing could long dispel. One of the earlier earls of Chilton had gone completely mad and hurled himself from the turrets of the castle. Speculation about the contents of the secret room had continued for centuries. One version of the tale described the panic-stricken flight of the Gowers, with armed enemies hot on their flagging heels. Although there had been bad blood between the Chilton Paines and the Gowers, in their desperation the Gowers begged for refuge at Chilton Castle. The Earl gave them entry, conducted them to a hidden room, and left with the promise that they would be shielded from their pursuers. The Earl kept his promise. The Gower's enemies were turned away from the castle, their murderous plans unconsummated. The Earl, however, simply left the Gowers in a locked room to starve to death. The chamber was not opened until thirty years later, when the Earl's son finally broke the seal. A fearful sight met his eyes. The Gowers had starved to death slowly, and at last, judging by the appearance of the mingled skeletons, had turned to cannibalism. Another version of the legend indicated that the secret room had been used by medieval earls as a torture chamber. It was said that the ingenious instruments of pain were yet in the room, and that these lethal apparatuses still clutched the pitiful remains of their final victims, twisted fearfully in their last agonies. The third version mentioned one of the female ancestors of the Chilton Paines, Lady Susan Glanville, who had reputedly made a pact with the devil. She had been condemned as a witch, but had somehow managed to escape the stake. The date and even the manner of her death were unknown, but in some vague way the secret room was supposed to be connected with it. As I speculated on these different versions of the gruesome legend, the storm increased in intensity. Rain drummed steadily against the leaded windows of the inn, and now I could occasionally hear the distant mutter of thunder. Glancing at the rain-streaked panes, I shrugged and ordered another pint of ale. I had the fresh tankard halfway to my lips when the taproom door burst open, letting in a blast of wind and rain. The door was shut, and a tall figure, muffled to the ears in a dripping greatcoat, moved to the bar. Removing his cap, he ordered brandy. Having nothing better to do, I observed him closely. He looked about seventy, grizzled and weather-worn, but wiry, with an appearance of toughness and determination. He was frowning, as if absorbed in thinking through some unpleasant problem, yet his cold blue eyes inspected me keenly for a brief but deliberate interval. I could not place him in a tidy niche. He might be a local farmer, and yet I did not think he was. He had a vague air of authority, and though his clothes were certainly plain, they were, I thought, somewhat better in cut and quality than those of the local countrymen I had observed. 
A trivial incident opened a conversation between us. An unusually sharp crack of thunder made him turn towards the window. As he did so, he accidentally brushed his wet cap on the floor. I retrieved it for him. He thanked me, and then we exchanged commonplace remarks about the weather. I had an intuitive feeling that, although he was normally a reticent individual, he was presently wrestling with some severe problem which made him want to hear a human voice. Realising there was always the possibility that my intuition might, for once, have failed me, I nevertheless babbled on about my trip, about my genealogical researches in Kilkenny, London and Chesterfield, and finally about my distant relationship to the Chiltern Pains and my desire to get a good look at Chiltern Castle. Suddenly I found that he was gazing at me with an expression which, if not fierce, was disturbingly intense. An awkward silence ensued. I coughed, wondering uneasily what I had said to make those cold blue eyes stare at me so fixedly. At length he became aware of my growing embarrassment. You must uh, excuse me for staring, he apologised, but something you said, he hesitated. Could we perhaps take that table? He nodded towards a small table which sat half in shadow in the far corner of the room. I agreed, mystified but curious and we took our drinks to the secluded table. He sat frowning for a minute, as if uncertain how to begin. Finally, he introduced himself as William Coworth. I gave him my name, and still he hesitated. At length he took a swallow of brandy, and then looked straight at me. I am, he stated, the factor at Chilton Castle. I surveyed him with surprise and renewed interest, "'What an agreeable coincidence!' I exclaimed. "'Then uh, perhaps tomorrow you could arrange for me to have a look at the castle.' "'He seemed scarcely to hear me. "'Yes, uh, yes, of course,' he replied absently. "'Puzzled and a bit irritated by his air of detachment, I remained silent. "'He took a deep breath and then spoke rapidly, running some of his words together. "'Robert Chilton Payne, uh, the twelfth Earl of Chilton, was buried in the family vaults one week ago.' Frederick, the young heir and now thirteenth earl, came of age just three days ago. Tonight it is imperative that he be conducted to the secret chamber. I gaped at him in incredulous amazement. For a moment I had an idea that he had somehow heard of my interest in Chilton Castle and was merely pulling my leg for amusement in the belief that I was the greenest of gullible tourists. But there could be no mistaking his deadly seriousness. There was not the faintest suspicion of humour in his eyes. I groped for words. It, it seems so strange, so unbelievable. Just before you arrived, I had been thinking about the various legends connected with the secret room. His cold eyes held my own. It is not legend that confronts us. It is fact. A thrill of fear and excitement ran through me. You're going there tonight? He nodded. Tonight, myself, uh, the young earl, and one other. I stared at him. Ordinarily, he continued, the earl himself would accompany us. Uh, that is the custom. But he is dead. Shortly before he passed away, he instructed me to select someone to go with the young earl and myself. That person must be male and, uh, preferably, of the blood. I took a deep drink of ale and said not a word. He continued. Besides the young earl, there is no one at the castle save his elderly mother, Lady Beatrice Chilton, and an ailing aunt. 
What could the Earl have had in mind? I inquired cautiously. The factor frowned. There are some distant male cousins residing in the country. I have an idea he thought at least one of them might appear for the obsequies, uh, but not one of them did. Oh, that was most unfortunate, I observed. Extremely unfortunate. And I am therefore asking you, as one of the blood, to accompany the young Earl and myself to the secret room tonight. I gulped like a bumpkin. Lightning flashed against the windows, and I could hear rain swishing along the stones outside. When feathers of ice stopped fluttering in my stomach, I managed a reply. But I, that is, my relationship is so very remote. I am of the blood, by courtesy only, you might say. The strain in me is so very diluted, he shrugged. You bear the name, and you possess at least a few drops of the pain blood. Under the present urgent circumstances, no more is necessary. I am sure that the old earl would agree with me, could he still speak. You will come. There was no escaping the intensity and the pressure of those cold blue eyes. They seemed to follow my mind about as it groped for further excuses. Finally, inevitably it seemed, I agreed. A feeling grew in me that the meeting had been preordained that somehow I had always been destined to visit the secret chamber in Chilton Castle. We finished our drinks, and I went up to my room for rainwear. When I descended, suitably attired for the storm, the obese bartender was snoring on his stool, in spite of the savage crashes of thunder which had now become almost incessant. I envied him as I left the cosy room with William Coworth. Once outside, my guide informed me that we would have to go on foot to the castle. He had purposely walked down to the inn, he explained, in order that he might have time and solitude to straighten out in his own mind the things which he would have to do. The sheets of heavy rain, the strong wind and the roar of thunder made conversation difficult. I walked Indian fashion behind the factor, who took enormous strides and appeared to know every inch of the way, in spite of the darkness. We walked only a short distance down the village street and then struck into a side road which very soon dwindled to a footpath made slippery and treacherous by the driving rain. Abruptly the path began to ascend. The footing became more precarious. It was at once necessary to concentrate all one's attention on one's feet. Fortunately the flashes of lightning were frequent. It seemed to me that we had been walking for an hour. Actually, I suppose, it was only a few minutes when the factor finally stopped. I found myself standing beside him on a flat, rocky plateau. He pointed up an incline which rose before us. Chilton Castle, he said. For a moment I saw nothing in the unrelieved darkness. Then the lightning flashed. Beyond high battlemented walls fissured with age, I glimpsed a great square Norman castle, with four rectangular corner towers pierced by narrow window apertures which looked like evil slitted eyes. The huge weathered pile was half covered by a mantle of ivy which appeared more black than green. It looks incredibly old, I commented. William Coworth nodded. It was begun in 1122 by Henry de Montargis. Without another word he started up the incline. As we approached the castle wall the storm grew worse. 
The slanting rain and powerful wind now made speech all but impossible. We bent our heads and staggered upwards. When the wall finally loomed in front of us, I was amazed at its height and thickness. It had been constructed, obviously, to withstand the best siege guns and battering rams which its early enemies could bring to bear on it. As we crossed a massive timbered drawbridge, I peered down into the black ditch of a moat, but I could not be sure whether there was water in it. A low, arched gateway gave access through the wall to an inner, cobblestoned courtyard. This courtyard was entirely empty, save for rivulets of rushing water. Crossing the cobblestones with swift strides, the factor led me to another arched gateway, in yet another wall. Inside was a second smaller yard, and beyond spread the ivy-clutched base of the ancient keep itself. Traversing a darkened stone-flagged passage, we found ourselves facing a ponderous door, age-blackened, oak-reinforced, with pitted bands of iron. The factor flung open this door, and there before us was the great hall of the castle. Four long, hand-hewn tables with their accompanying benches stretched almost the entire length of the hall. Metal torch brackets stained with age were affixed to sculptured stone columns which supported the roof. Ranged around the walls were suits of armour, heraldic shields, halberds, pikes and banners, the accumulated trophies and prizes of bloody centuries when each castle was almost a kingdom unto itself. In flickering candlelight, which appeared to be the only illumination, the grim array was eerily impressive. William Coweth waved a hand. The holders of Chilton lived by the sword for many centuries. Walking the length of the great hall, he entered another dim passageway. I followed silently. As we strode along, he spoke in a subdued voice. Frederick, the young heir, uh, does not enjoy robust health. The shock of his father's death was severe. He dreads tonight's ordeal, which he knows must come. Stopping before a wooden door embellished with carved fleur-de-lis and metal scrollwork, he gave me a shadowed, enigmatic glance, and then knocked. Someone inquired who was there, and he identified himself. Presently, a heavy bolt was lifted, and the door opened. If the Chilton Paynes had been stubborn fighters in their day, the warrior blood appeared to have become considerably diluted in the veins of Frederick, the young heir, and now thirteenth earl. I saw before me a thin, pale-complexioned young man, whose dark, sunken eyes looked haunted and fearful. His dress was both theatrical and anachronistic, a dark green velvet coat and trousers, a green satin waistband, flounces of white lace at neck and wrists. He beckoned us in, as if with reluctance, and closed the door. The walls of the small room were entirely covered with tapestries depicting the hunt or medieval battle scenes. A draught of air from a window or other aperture made them undulate constantly. They seemed to have a disturbing life of their own. In one corner of the room there was an antique canopy bed, in another a large writing table with an agate lamp. After a brief introduction, which included an explanation of how I came to be accompanying them, the factor inquired if his lordship was ready to visit the chamber. 
Although he was one in any case, Frederick's face now lost every last trace of colour. He nodded, however, and preceded us into the passage. William Cowles led the way, the young earl followed him, and I brought up the rear. At the far end of the passage, the factor opened the door of a cobwebbed supply room. Here he secured candles, chisels, a pick, and a sledgehammer. After packing these into a leather bag which he slung over one shoulder, he picked up a faggot torch which lay on one of the shelves in the room. He lit this, then waited while it flared into a steady flame. Satisfied with this illumination, he closed the room and beckoned for us to continue after him. Nearby was a descending spiral of stone steps. Lifting his torch, the factor started down. We trailed after him wordlessly. There must have been fifty steps in that long downward spiral. As we descended, the stones became wet and cold. The air, too, grew colder. But the cold was not of the type that refreshes. It was too laden with the smell of mould and dampness. At the bottom of the steps we faced a tunnel, pitch black and silent. The factor raised his torch. Chilton Castle is Norman, but it is said to have been reared over a Saxon ruin. It is believed that the passageways in these depths were constructed by the Saxons, he peered frowning into the tunnel, or by some still earlier folk. He hesitated briefly, and I thought he was listening. Then, glancing round at us, he proceeded down the passage. I walked after the earl, shivering. The dead, icy air seemed to pierce to the pith of my bones. The stones underfoot grew slippery with a film of slime. I longed for more light, but there was none, save that cast by the flickering, bobbing torch of the factor. Partway down the passage, he paused, and again I sensed that he was listening. The silence seemed absolute, however, and we went on. The end of the passage brought us to more descending steps. We went down some fifteen and entered another tunnel which appeared to have been cut out of the solid rock on which the castle had been reared. White-crusted nitre clung to the walls. The reek of mould was intense. The icy air was fetid with some other odour which I found peculiarly repellent, though I could not name it. At last the factor stopped, lifted his torch and slid the leather bag from his shoulder. I saw that we stood before a wall made of some kind of building stone. Though damp and stained with nitre, it was obviously of much more recent construction than anything we had previously encountered. Glancing round at us, William Coworth handed me the torch. Keep a good hold on it, if you please. I have candles, but... Leaving the sentence unfinished, he drew the pick from his sling-bag and began an assault on the wall. The barry was solid enough, but after he had worked a hole in it, he took up the sledgehammer, and quicker progress was made. Once I offered to take up the hammer while he held the torch, but he only shook his head and went on with his work of demolition. All this time the young earl had not spoken a word. As I looked at his tense white face, I felt sorry for him, in spite of my own mounting trepidation. Abruptly, there was silence as the factor lowered the sledgehammer. I saw that a good two feet of the lower wall remained. 
William Cowarth bent to inspect it. Strong enough, he commented cryptically. I will leave that to build on. We can step over it. For a full minute he stood looking silently into the blackness beyond. Finally, shouldering his bag, he took the torch from my hand and stepped over the ragged base of the wall. We followed suit. As I entered that chamber, the fetid odour which I had noticed in the passage seemed to overwhelm us. It washed round us in a nauseating wave, and we all gasped for breath. The factor spoke between coughs. It will subside in a minute or two. Stand near the aperture. Although the reek remained repellently strong, we could at length breathe more freely. William Cowarth lifted his torch and peered into the black depths of the chamber. Fearfully, I gazed around his shoulder. There was no sound, and at first I could see nothing but nitre-encrusted walls and wet stone floor. Presently, however, in a far corner, just beyond the flickering halo of the faggot torch, I saw two tiny, fiery spots of red. I tried to convince myself that they were two red jewels, two rubies shining in the torchlight. But I knew at once, I felt at once, what they were. They were two red eyes, and they were watching us with a fierce, unwavering stare. The factor spoke softly. Wait here. He crossed towards the corner, stopped halfway and held out his torch at arm's length. For a moment he was silent. Finally he emitted a long, shuddering sigh. When he spoke again, his voice had changed. It was only a sepulchral whisper. Come forward, he told us in that strange, hollow voice. I followed Frederick until we stood at either side of the factor. When I saw what crouched on a stone bench in that far corner, I felt sure that I would faint. My heart literally stopped beating for perceptible seconds. The blood left my extremities. I reeled with dizziness. I might have cried out, but my throat would not open. The entity which rested on that stone bench was like something that had crawled up out of hell. Piercing, malignant eyes proclaimed that it had a terrible life, and yet that life sustained itself in a black, shrunken, half-mummified body which resembled a disinterred corpse. A few mouldy rags clung to the cadaver-like frame. Wisps of white hair sprouted out of its ghastly grey-white skull. A red smear or blotch of some sort covered the wizened slit which served it as a mouth. It surveyed us with a malignancy which was beyond anything merely human. It was impossible to stare back into those monstrous red eyes. They were so inexpressibly evil, one felt that one's soul would be consumed in the fires of their malevolence. Glancing aside, I saw that the factor was now supporting Frederick. The young heir had sagged against him, staring fixedly at the fearful apparition with terror-glazed eyes. In spite of my own sense of horror, I pitied him. 
the fact aside again, and then he spoke once more in that low, sepulchral voice. You see before you, he told us, Lady Susan Glanville. She was carried into this chamber and fettered to the wall in 1473. A thrill of horror coursed through me. I felt that we were in the presence of malign forces from the pit itself. To me, the hideous thing had appeared sexless, but at the sound of its name, the ghastly mockery of a grin contorted the puckered, red-smeared mouth. I noticed now for the first time that the monster actually was secured to the wall. The great double shackles were so blackened with age I had not noticed them before. The factor went on, as if he spoke by rote. Lady Glanville was a maternal ancestor of the Chilton Paines. She had commerce with the devil. She was condemned as a witch, but escaped the stake. Finally, her own people forcibly overcame her. She was brought in here, fettered, and left to die. He was silent a moment, and then continued. It was too late. She had already made a pact with the powers of darkness. It was an unspeakably evil thing, and it has condemned her issue to a life of torment and nightmare, a life of terror and dread. He swung his torch towards the black and red-eyed thing. She was a beauty once. She hated death, she feared death, and so she finally bartered her own immortal soul and the bodies of her issue for eternal earthly life. I heard his voice as in a nightmare. It seemed to be coming from an infinite distance. He went on. The consequences of breaking the pact are too terrible to describe. No descendant of hers has ever dared to do so, once the forfeit is known. And so she has bided here for these nearly five hundred years. I had thought he was finished, but he resumed. Glancing upwards, he lifted his torch toward the roof of that accursed chamber. This room, he said, lies directly underneath the family vaults. Upon the death of the earl, the body is ostensibly left in the vaults. When the mourners have gone, however, a false bottom of the vault is thrust aside, and the body of the earl is lowered into this room. Looking up, I saw the square rectangle of a trapdoor above. The factor's voice now became barely audible. Once, every generation, Lady Glanville feeds on the corpse of the deceased Earl. It is a provision of that unspeakable pact which cannot be broken. I knew now, with a sense of horror utterly beyond description, whence came that red smear on the repulsive mouth of the creature before us. As if to confirm his words, the factor lowered his torch until its flame illuminated the floor at the foot of the stone bench where the vampiric monster was fettered. Strewn about the floor were the scattered bones and skull of an adult male, red with fresh blood, and at some distance were other human bones, brown and crumbling with age. At this point, Frederick began to scream. His shrill, hysterical cries filled the chamber. Although the factor shook him roughly, his terrible shrieks continued, terror-filled, nerve-shaking. For moments the corpse-like thing on the bench watched him with its frightful eyes. 
It uttered sound, finally, a kind of animal squeal, which might have been intended as laughter. Abruptly then, and without any warning, it slid from the bench and lunged towards the young earl. The blackened shackles which fettered it to the wall permitted it to advance only a yard or two. It was pulled back sharply, yet it lunged again and again, squealing with a kind of hellish glee which stirred the hair on my head. William Coworth thrust his torch towards the monster, but it continued to lunge at the end of its fetters. The nightmare room resounded with the earl's screams and the creature's horrible squeals of bestial laughter. I felt that my own mind would give way unless I escaped from that ante-room of hell. For the first time during an ordeal which would have sent any lesser man fleeing for his life and sanity, the iron control of the factor appeared to be shaken. He looked beyond the wild lunging thing towards the wall where the fetters were fastened. I sensed what was in his mind. Would those fastenings hold after all these centuries of rust and dampness? On a sudden resolve, he reached into an inner pocket and drew out something which glittered in the torchlight. It was a silver crucifix. Standing forward, he thrust it almost into the twisted face of the leaping monstrosity, which had once been the ravishing Lady Susan Glanville. The creature reeled back with an agonised scream which drowned out the cries of the earl. It cowered on the bench, abruptly silent and motionless, only the pulsating of its wizened mouth and the fires of hatred in its red eyes giving evidence that it still lived. William Coworth addressed it grimly. Creature of hell, if ye leave that bench ere we quit this room and seal it once again, I swear that I shall hold this cross against ye. The thing's red eyes watched the factor with an expression of abysmal hatred which no combination of mere letters could convey. They actually appeared to glow with fire, and yet I read in them something else. Fear. I suddenly became aware that silence had descended on that room of the damned. It lasted only a few moments. The earl had finally stopped screaming, but now came something worse. He began to laugh. It was only a low chuckle, but it was somehow worse than all his screams. It went on and on, softly, mindlessly. The factor turned, beckoning me towards the partially demolished wall. Crossing the room, I climbed out. Behind me, the factor led the young earl who shuffled like an old man, chuckling to himself. There was then what seemed an interminable interval, during which the factor carried back a sack of mortar and a keg of water which he had previously left somewhere in the tunnel. Working by torchlight, he prepared the cement and proceeded to seal up the chamber using the same stones which he had displaced. While the factor laboured, the young earl sat motionless in the tunnel, chuckling softly. There was silence from within. Once only I heard the thing's fetters clank against the stone. At last the factor finished and led us back through those nitre-stained passageways and up the icy stairs. The earl could scarcely ascend. With difficulty the factor supported him from step to step. 
Back in his tapestry-panelled chamber, Frederick sat on his canopy bed and stared at the floor, laughing quietly. With horror, I noticed that his black hair had actually turned grey. After persuading him to drink a glass of liquid, which I had no doubt contained a heavy dose of sedative, the factor managed to get him stretched out on the bed. William Coworth then led me to a nearby bedchamber. My impulse was to rush from that hellish pile without delay, but the storm still raged, and I was by no means sure I could find my way back to the village without a guide. The factor shook his head sadly. I fear his lordship is doomed to an early death. He was never strong, and tonight's events may have deranged his mind, may have weakened him beyond hope of recovery. I expressed my sympathy and horror. The factor's cold blue eyes held my own. It may be, he said, that in the event of the young earl's death, you, yourself, might be considered, he hesitated, might be considered, he finally concluded, as somewhat in line of succession. I wanted to hear no more. I gave him a curt good night, bolted the door after him, and tried, quite unsuccessfully, to salvage a few minutes' sleep. But sleep would not come. I had feverish visions of that red-eyed thing in the sealed chamber, escaping its fetters, breaking through the wall and crawling up those icy, slime-covered stairs. Even before dawn, I softly unbolted my door and, like a marauding thief, crept shivering through the cold passageways and the great deserted hall of the castle. Crossing the cobbled courtyard and the black moat, I scrambled down the incline towards the village. Long before noon, I was well on my way to London. Luck was with me. The next day, I was on a boat bound for the Atlantic run. I shall never return to England. I intend always to keep Chilton Castle and its permanent occupant at least an ocean away. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? So that was The Horror at Chilton Castle by Joseph Payne Brennan. And what I'd say before telling you something about him is, like Joseph Payne Brennan, if you're going to do the gothic, do it properly with all the bells and whistles. So remote countryside, strange servants, remote and empty countryside, strange servants, terrible weather, thunder and lightning, rain, deranged aristocrats, um, crumbling castles, Beneath the castle's terrible vaults uh, and uh, a dreadful family secret. It's got it all. It's got it all. Unlike the Netflix version of The Fall of the House of Usher, which, do you know, I love that story. I've done it on this. If you haven't heard it, go listen to my version. If you want to, if you don't, that's fine. Um, but OMG, the first bit of it was just dreadful. And then the sort of the two blokes, um, Roderick Usher sitting in the in the thing drinking this aged whiskey. Um, you know, you're like, yeah, it's all right. So I like the I like the setting there, but 
Ah, they just, they could, let's just, almost, I I was reading a review and they said like, you know, they get these stories that are good, stood the test of time, and they go, do you know what, we're just going to use the name and we're going to just make it like we make everything else, which it just, and I don't know what it is with the generation of people who write movies, you know, Hollywood script writers and uh, these, it's the same showrunners or whatever they call them. They just can't write. We saw it with Rings of Power. We saw it with um, the last season of Game of Thrones. We see, I went and see these um, some of these Marvel movies, and uh, I hope you know there's no Marvel fans sitting out there, but they're just interminable bores of absolutely predictable characters. They must get a you know out of a cupboard. They've got to be a little bit ah oh, wisecracking, smart ass. Anyway, so I didn't like it, but I like this, the horror at Children Castle. Joseph Painbrenner, let's say something about Joe Boy, as I am calling him. And I hope he doesn't mind me calling him that. Um, I don't think he would. I mean, he's dead, unless he's unless he's um, fettered somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, great word. Unless he's fettered somewhere uh, and, and he's feeding on his relatives. And uh, let's hope he doesn't get out if he's heard me calling him Joe Boy. And it was, in fact... It could be that, you know, maybe he was once called Joe Boy and he laid the bloke out. He punched him straight on the jaw for calling him Joe Boy. Um, I nearly told you a slightly off-colour story about what my my half-brother told me about what our cousin said to him who visited him in the USA. And, uh, okay, so um, my my biological father's name was Hand, surname. Good Irish name. And uh, he, uh, you know, we have relatives in Scotland, USA, all over. So my half-brother Michael lives in New York City and uh, my cousin Seth had gone out to see him and uh, one of the guys, that he knew, I think this might be when, they, when he was living in D.C. because he grew up there uh, and uh, they'd gone out to this and, and of course, because the name Hand lends itself to some you know, unpleasant uh, soubriquets uh, and uh, he, uh, the guy went, hey, this word, and uh, my cousin Seth said, never. Never let him talk to you like that. Anytime a guy talks to you like that, you'll lay him out. And uh, Michael said, I won't do his American accent. He said, oh, I don't mind. He's dead easy going, Michael. So this all started from some wild imagining that I may call this author Joe Boy, Joseph Payne Brennan. Let's hear about him. This is, uh, I'm going to, this is from the Wikipedia. Now, somebody once said, why Why should I listen when all you do is read from the Wikipedia? Well, I don't just read from the Wikipedia. I tell jokes in between. Whether you think they're funny or not, they're still jokes. It's my personal contribution. So Joseph Payne Brennan, born December 20th, 1918, died January 28th, 1990. Was an American writer of fantasy and horror fiction and also a poet of Irish ancestry, as he suggests in the um, story. He was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, I've been in a train through there. I've never stopped, though. And he lived most of his life in New Haven, Connecticut. I'm not sure if I've been there. And worked as an actor. You'd be saying to me, well, the railway, the railroad, goes through them both, so you must have been. Uh, And worked as an actor, you know, if you can count one minute at the station. But you see it, so it kind of is like being there a little bit, tiny bit. Anyway, worked as a, Joseph Payne Brennan, that is, and worked as an acquisitions assistant at the Sterling Memorial Library of Yale University for over 40 years. Brennan published several hundred short stories. Estimates range between 400 and 500. Two novellas and reputedly thousands of poems. 
His stories appeared in over 200 anthologies and have been translated into various languages. He was an early bibliographer of the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Brennan's first professional sale came in December 1940 with the publication of the poem When Snow is Hung, which appeared in the Christian Science Monitor. And he continued writing poetry. As a fiction writer, he started out writing westerns for the pulp, switched to horror stories in 1952, uh, publishing them in Weird Tales, and published his own mag- magazine, Macabre, which ran from 1957 to 76. Several of his short stories concern a cult detective named Lucius Leffing. You know, I don't like those occult detectives. Karnaki and And I know some of you love them. Algernon Blackwood's John Sand. I know some of you do. I just, I'd rather have your proper detective. I like a hard-boiled detective. I like a Dashiell Hammett or a um, Roman Chandler detective, you know. Um, so, Weston's poetry, Macabre House magazine and Arkham House. So, uh, I've kind of asked ChatGP, oh, don't start. You, you. ChatGPT, okay. Um, I'm going to tell you something funny in a minute. Well, I think it's funny. This isn't it. So this is this is what he says. So, um, yeah, so he attended Hill House High School in New Haven. He went to study at Yale, where he developed his skills in writing and storytelling. After completing his education, he worked as a librarian. In the 50s and 60s, he began to make a name for himself in the world of speculative fiction. That's what we call it politely. Now, you know, like sci-fi and horror. Spec- it sounds more respectable, doesn't it? Because we're really worried that uh, we are not respectable, that we are kind of like the people who write this kind of thing. We worry that we're just... Um, trash and funnily enough i was reading michael moorcock a book by michael moorcock of his non-fiction and he was talking about how he wanted with the new wave of sci-fi wanted to forge uh, a genre that was strong enough to bear the most interesting ideas and you may argue that he did, did do that but i do pick up there this kind of um kind of shame that you just oh you just write pulp you don't write um thousand word books about posh people having breakdowns in France, which is literary fiction, or, you know, stopping at a hotel in Switzerland and you just write, you know, 400 pages about how they feel and how they are attracted to a woman called Mabel but never actually speak to her, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. I'd rather read a good sci-fi or horror, being honest with you. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I've read all that. When in my 20s, I used to read improving books. So I speak as one who's... I'm reading the um, Avignon Quintet at the moment by Lawrence Durrell. It's taken me a while because I kind of read a book and have a break and read something. And I quite like it. I do quite like it. Anyway, Joseph Brennan. Joe Boy. I don't think he would have minded, really. Died in 1990. Um, He was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth. Remember, I always have the problem, is it Derleth or Derleth? Um, You're right, Mrs. Derleth. Can your August come out to play, please? Um, no, he can't. Not with you, Tony Walker, uh, Lal Walik. Anyway, so that's how it would have gone if I'd been a contemporary of August's. So Brennan was particularly associated with the Cthulhu mythos. But was he, though? This wasn't. This was super-duper gothic. This was, um, this was good stuff. So, I, you know, and sometimes you want what you want, don't you? You know, you want a uh, mac and cheese. And that's what you you don't want anything too fancy. So you want the mac and cheese that is basically the same kind of mac and cheese you've always had, but it's not exactly the same. Sometimes you might want the exact same one. But I think with writing, um, you go, do you know what? I like um, I like gothic stories. I like gothic stories. Give me a, a, a castle 
an ominous servant, a rain-soaked night. Do you know, I'm happy. Uh, a little bit of variation. One could be in Austria, one could be in Scotland, one could be in Ireland, one could be in Germany, Italy even, you know, or uh, Transylvania, obviously. Anyway, so I was, um, I went out uh, with my mate Ben the other night, and we had a we had a couple of pints of Lowe's water gold in the um, in the lifeboat uh, in Maryport, and um, it was packed to start off with the place. And we always we always talk like this. And he said we should start a podcast. I'm going, yeah, 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 but you know what about? And he said, well, just us talking. I went, oh, yeah, okay, maybe. Uh, and, but he came up with the theme of, of, we were talking about the internet, and you know what they say, the internet is 98%. Um, it, if, you, if you look at it, it's cat videos or animal videos, pornography and get-rich-quick schemes with some bare-knuckle-fighting videos thrown in there. That's about it. So anything else is a minimum. So, and then it's full of these get-rich-quick schemes. So we thought of different ones we could do. First of all, he was saying we could do one on, we're going to do one on crypto. Do you know, not that either of us know anything about crypto, um, but get rich quick. Because I don't think a lot of the people who do the get rich quick videos really know very much about what they're talking about. And then we could do, um, I said we could do an OnlyFans. Uh, we could try that. <laughs> and we got talking about this. And then it struck me that um, I, he, I mean, he hasn't seen me naked. Uh, and I haven't seen him naked. He's a lot taller than me. But I avoid my own. There's a full-length mirror in my bedroom, and I kind of, if I catch it, I'm like, whoa, what was that? And I said, I don't know, but it needs ironed. Um, ha, 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 that's not my joke, but it's still funny. Um, and uh, so we thought we could try it for a month, and if we make any money, then we continue. But um, uh, obviously, I, I think we were joking. This is the point. Because I, I, I think there's some real moral problems about OnlyFans, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, don't get too deep into this, but really, do you know that it encourages particularly young women, vulnerable young women, just who are just ordinary lasses, just to think, I tell you what, I'm going to take my clothes off and make a fortune. And like everything else, I'm not sure they do. Some, some do, some do. Um, anyway, so the OnlyFans one. And then I said, well, what about scamming old ladies? Because a lot of people make that. I don't know if you watch the scammer, scammer payback on YouTube. He's really funny. I just set up an Etsy, well, I'll segue or sachet into this one. I set up an Etsy shop uh, because, you know, Amazon, th there's, an there's an interesting twist to this story. Amazon banned all my books for some bogus reason and they've proved very, very, they keep sending me, I keep sending them appeals and they go, we will not we will not talk to you again about this. This is our final decision. And now they've actually stopped talking to me because, do you know, like they're all, oh, we love customer care. Yeah, yeah. You try and be a supplier of theirs. They treat you like dirt. Um, but if you're a customer, oh, yeah, you know. But um, uh, so their decision was bogus. You, you know the story. Somebody claimed I breached copyright. They then reached out to me and said, do you know what, just change the words. You probably didn't know they were copyright. I said, I didn't. They said, would you change them? I'm like, of course I would. By which time Amazon have gone, you have broken our policies. Um, so anyway, you know all that because I've been going on about it. Anyway, I thought, right, <clears throat> I'm going to publish my books through Ingram Spark. So I did. Um, I haven't got them all up, but I've got a bulk, the bulk of them up. And uh, the, the twist in the tale is you can actually buy my books on Amazon through Ingram Spark now. Amazingly funny. 
so you can uh, you can get Tony Walker's ghost stories on Amazon if you hate those son of a guns. Don't hate them. I hate them. I will never buy anything from Amazon, and I don't. I'm just, you know, I'm buying. I'm I'm sourcing other where, other places. But um, if you if you want to, but the irony is, because you can still buy my books on Amazon, you just buy them through Ingram Spark. It says, oh, we'll be delivered in one or two months. That's not true. Uh, they're still trying to talk it down. But uh, anyway, but I set up an Etsy shop so that um, you could buy them direct from me. But I am not a businessman. Let's be honest. So I set up this Etsy shop and I got one sale. Whoa, somebody beautifully bought seven of my books, which I think is all the ones I've got up at the moment. And uh, I make about, after everybody takes their cut, about two quid, two pounds a book. So seven times 14 pounds a major, better than kicking the teeth. And I charged her to go to the USA. They're both American uh, things. I charged um, her uh, five pounds for, for shipping postage. And then I went to the post and they said, yes, 40 pounds to send it. I went, y- y- what? Yes, 40 pounds. And then I had another one. I only bought two books. So that was three no, that was three pounds something or other. Maybe, maybe five because it was going abroad, and um, that was twenty pounds. So you clearly have lost money on that. So I think I can't actually sell them abroad because of the terrible cost of shipping. But you can get them from Amazon. You can order also order them from your local bookstore. So if you really want, I tell you what's a really good present for Christmas as we're coming up. If you want Halloween, I've, you'll still get um, horror stories for Halloween by me, Tony Walker. Just order from your local bookstore uh, or Amazon um, and because I still get paid. Uh, and, and or um, you could go, oh no, the other one is Christmas Ghost Stories. Very touching, sweet, does very well, used to. Um, so that's a nice little gift. I've just got a new cover. If you have a look at the cover, it's, I like that cover. It's like a paper quill thing of a seat in a Christmas tree. Um, so yeah, you can get those. Don't, if, if you're in the UK, it's better for me. You go to my Etsy store, Classic Ghost Stories Etsy store. If you're a, no, not in the UK, I think Ireland probably works as well. But but if you, um, I don't know really. I think it does because it's not like uh, Ireland and, and Britain have, um, you know, a complicated history. But um, but um, to say the least. But um, it isn't treated like the EU. For example, you don't need a passport to cut cross between the two, the Republic of Ireland and Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You don't need a passport. And uh, it, it is so, it's, and Irish people can vote in, in the UK. Um, but, um, and possibly vice versa. And you don't need a, I don't think you, you're limited to how long you can stay either. But the, so France and all that, that being Europe, I think if you're there or Denmark, somewhere like that, it's uh, probably still, it's probably best to um, get get them a book from your local store, if you want them at all. It was a funny thing, I, t- I said this many times, that, you know, I started this this uh, podcast to um, to get people to start buy my books. I'd read a whole bunch of stories by other people, I'd stick one of mine and go, hey, buy a book. And that isn't really what happened, it happened a little bit, but uh, that isn't really what happened because, and, and you think what you're selling people, What I think people, I don't know, and, and there's, like huge amounts of people listen to my podcast now, both on YouTube and um, on the, um, I was going to say on the radio. I love a radio station. But then you have to stay up all night and do it. So I've got late night sleep radio. If you don't know about that, go to that. That is me. That's like super ramble. 
Um, but with customs and folklore and all that and bedtime story. So where was I? I can't even remember. So this is what happens. I've kind of got to the end of, and I'm just dwindling down, down, down. And some of you were sitting going, you were talking about this. I can't hear you. Oh, yeah, selling my books. And um, the point being that a lot of people, I would say possibly the majority, use this. That made me jump. That's telling me to shut up now. Use this as a way of falling asleep. So I hope I didn't wake you up. Uh, I don't mind. Honestly, I don't mind. But they don't want to buy my books. They just want to fall asleep. And that's cool, you know, because I like falling asleep. Some come back. Isn't that so? I like that little echo reverb. That's the end of the Hartwood Institute track. Boom, boom, boom. And normally I'm gone by now. I've outstayed my welcome. Speak to you soon. Happy Halloween. I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts than on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.